Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. Hello and welcome to Starship Zero G, science fiction, fantasy and historical radio for episode 1345 entitled Jackie Jan. The podcast title is Potty Guardian Sailor Megan. I am Megan McHugh. And I'm Rob Chan. <laughs> yeah, we're a little bit a little bit carried away there by the anime that we're going to talk about today. <laughs> mm-hmm, oh, mm-hmm. And, and also, uh, actually, we're, we're really over in Asia today. We have a Japanese science fiction movie. I would call it science fiction. We'll go with that. <laughs> and also a Chinese historical movie. Well, more or less, rather, <laughs> rather less than more, but, you know, we'll get there. The Chinese movie is Dragon Blade with Jackie Chan, mm-hmm. and Megan is going to tell us a great deal about... Pretty Guardian, Sailor Moon Eternal, the movie, uh, in the running for longest movie title on Netflix. <laughs> so we will also chat about that anime two-parter as well. So we've got a butt-kicking show ahead of us, I think. Now, growing up, a young child living in rural New South Wales, Saturday mornings for me were a highlight of the week, Turn on the TV, turn on the knob of the TV, crank it around, click, click, click. This is me showing my age uh, until I could find, I'm pretty sure it was Saturday Disney or something similar. And I would get to watch the English dub and the thoroughly westernized version of Sailor Moon. So it has had a very strong place in my heart since then. So of course, when Pretty Guardian Sailor Moon Eternal, the movie, <laughs> Uh, arrived on Netflix, which it did on June 3rd. So it is available there now, fresh off the presses. I absolutely had to take a look and I roped Rob into having a look as well. Just before I dive into a little bit more about Sailor Moon and the history, what's your history with Sailor Moon, Rob? Are you familiar, apart from my ravings, what's your knowledge of the franchise? That's it. <laughs> <laughs> Just no. my ravings. <laughs> no, 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 I have watched a few episodes because um, mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm. I, I started doing a little bit of a general survey of anime well, mm-hmm, about mm-hmm. 20 years ago and looked into some of those ones as well before I got, you know, diverted by the antics of various anime girls being transformed into battleships or yes. being in charge of panzers mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. you know, getting caught up in zombie apocalypses in high schools and stuff like that. I did have a, a glance at Sailor Moon and I will say one thing. I once said that I was too old for the Pokemon wave of mm-hmm, things, mm-hmm. but I had caught up some episodes of Pokemon afterwards. And I've always been of the opinion that if I had watched Pokemon as a kid, I really would have loved it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I give yeah. it that. And so I think Sailor Moon is probably one of those things. I might actually have liked it because I did like um, uh, Tezuka's uh, Princess Knight. Mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. So there was a few of those shows that I wouldn't have mind watching. I didn't care if they were about boys or girls, made no difference to me in terms of watching the content. Um, so there might have been something in this to have uh, 
enlivened my Saturday mornings or afternoons. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's it. Like I probably, it was, I was smack in the middle of its core audience when it was on TV here in Australia. And I think things like Pokemon and Sailor Moon are the Western entry point for a lot of young people of that era into things like anime and learning a bit more about different animation. So this latest uh, Sailor Moon movie is Pretty Guardian Sailor Moon Eternal, the movie as mentioned. It is a two-parter. So we are looking at almost a runtime of three hours. It is available on Netflix, as I mentioned earlier, and it is directed by Chiaki Kon, written by Kazuyuki Fudiyasu, and the production uh, is by Toei Animation and Studio Dean. Uh, Now, the composer for the movies is Yasuharu Takanashi. Film did get a release in Japanese theatres, so it was meant to come out late last year, but of course we all know what happened there, and it did come out instead earlier this year in January, the first part, and then the second part was released about a month later in early to mid-February. And then, of course, on our shores we have gotten it through the streaming house Netflix, which does make some of these things and some of this content pretty readily available to us, which I do appreciate. So before we delve a little more into this specific offering from the Sailor Moon oeuvre, uh, I'd want to dive back a little bit and talk a bit about Sailor Moon's origin story. So as many of these things do, uh, did originate in manga. So it's a manga by Naoko Takeuchi, and the original title was Pretty Guardian Sailor Moon, also sometimes known as Pretty Soldier Sailor Moon. <laughs> and it was a serial, yeah, it was a serial in Nakayoshi magazine, and it ran from early 90s to mid 90s, so from about 1991 to 1997. And then, of course, was published in your typical manga volumes as well that you could purchase after the fact. So it's quite a common way of doing graphic novels and manga and things like that. So Toei Animation jumped on board and did the TV animated series and that aired in Japan from 1992 to 1997. And then we did actually get some more recent Sailor Moon, which I've not actually watched and remember that for later because it becomes important. So Sailor Moon Crystal, that series came out in 2014. So actually not that long ago. So that was a little bit of a revival on television of the Sailor Moon anime. Now, there was also in early 2000s, 2003, a live action TV show called Pretty Guardian Sailor Moon that was produced and made in Japan. And I did ask why, and I looked up some stills from that. And it is, it looks about what you expect. Uh, and, in, and on top of that, we also have other things like video games, tabletop games, a Universal Studios Japan ride all kinds of other things. And, you know, more merch than you could poke a stick at, figurines and so on. Yes, and action figures. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So when you've got your own action figure, you know you've made it as an anime character. So, so much of that kind of saturated not only Japan and also leaked into the West because Sailor Moon did get some syndication overseas. The 20th anniversary of the series, which was 2012 the manga had sold over 35 million copies and that was across about 50 countries so it's been translated distributed internationally and the franchise itself has had quite a large revenue that it's generated uh, due to merch and so on and reprintings of the manga and the tv and all of that so it's quite popular I think we all can agree that it's a fairly 
well-known piece of pop culture. I think a lot of people would be familiar with Sailor Moon or at least the kind of visual aesthetic of Sailor Moon. Would it be would it be Japan's most famous superhero team? I've been thinking about that. I think Power Rangers is also another one that's up there. So that's another example of um, taking something that we did well in Japan and kind of adapting it for a Western audience. And, in fact, the Sailor Moon series was adapted for Western audiences based on the success of Mighty Morphin Power Rangers in the West. Mm. So I would say she's probably up there, I would think. I mean, no, it depends on what you mean by superhero. I would say Pokemon does pretty well and is pretty well-known property, maybe even more so, especially things like Pokemon Go more recently. It's had a pretty long-lived life, Pokemon, especially um, the games and things. So, yeah, it's kind of hard to say. But they are definitely, but they're definitely up there. superheroes, so, you know, that's, that's where it is. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So let's delve a little bit more into that. So what exactly are they? The series that I'm familiar with, the Sailor Moon origin story, so we're in Tokyo We have a young student. I did look it up because I was like, I have no idea what age they were meant to be, but we're looking at about 14, 15 or so. So we have our protagonist now in Japan. Her name is Usagi. In the West, what I saw her name was Serena. So she befriends a cat. So I thought this might hook you, Rob, the cat element (laughs) being quite important. So she meets Luna, a talking black cat who kind of helps her discover her inner magic and shows her the world of being Sailor Moon and the how to transform and the powers that she has inside. And, it, you know, we unravel a bit more backstory and a bit more about Usagi's destiny and the sidekicks and helpers that she has along the way who are going to help her to save Earth, fight darkness and so on. And so they're a pretty mean team, all of them together. So I knew them as Sailor Scouts, but I think they're also known as Sailor Guardians or Sailor Soldiers. I think the accepted vernacular these days is Sailor Guardians, so I'm going to go with that. Usagi and Luna, we kind of meet all of our different other companions and we learn a bit more about them and their inner Sailor Guardian and help them unleash their powers and transform into these protectors of Usagi and kind of learn a little bit more about her history. So I will run through a little bit more about each particular character. Before I do that, I might actually play a little bit of a track to get us in the Sailor mood. So I'm actually going to play a version of the Sailor Moon theme. I sadly would love to have gotten the one with the lyrics from my childhood, but I think this will also do. It's a bit of an instrumental version of the Sailor Moon theme, and this one is by Niari. Hello, Nimrods. <laughs> this is Master Shake from Aqua Teen Hunger Force. And I'm Meatwad, the key member of Aqua Teen Hunger Force. And guess what? You're listening to Zero G on Three Triple R FM, Australia's only real classic rock. Right? You do classic rock I here, right? I thought this was easy listening. Ah, uh, whatever. Hey, don't matter. I'll talk all the time. What? But with music. Three Triple R FM. And no one will defeat the Quad Laser. That was, of course, the Sailor Moon theme. And we are, of course, Zero G. And today we are talking about Sailor Moon, more specifically, Pretty Guardian Sailor Moon Eternal, the movie. (laughs) And, you know, that theme, I say that I'm not as familiar with Sailor Moon as other anime, but I know that 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 repeated riff at the end there is because Mm -hmm. in the lyrics she goes, um, she is the one called Sailor Moon, and then they double down on it. You know, she is the one. 
<laughs> mm, mm. If there was ever any doubt that she was special, I mean, I'm here to tell you that she is the one. Uh, uh, it is quite recognisable. I would like to point out, uh, if you're completely uninitiated into the mm-hmm. into the complexity of the Sailor Mooniverse, mm-hmm. that um, they're called sailors because they're dressed up in in that classic Japanese trope of sailor sort of costumes that they used to wear to mm. school. So it's a schoolgirl yes, sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very recognisable um, outfits. So now we are talking, so they're teenagers, they're fighting evil, they've got the magic of the universe gifted to them, and, of course, along the way of fighting evil, they're going to learn lessons about friendship and love and what it takes to fight evil and that maybe the power was within them the whole time, etc., etc. <laughs> There's also a bit of uh, time travel, of course, and they do really lean into the whole um, power of the planets and the galaxy and, and whatnot. It's a bit strange and it's a bit silly and over the top, but that's what we're here for. So I'll run through a couple of the characters that we see in Sailor Moon, and this movie's no exception, so I'll run through them on a kind of general level. So we do have our core sailor guardians. So they're also known as the inner guardians. And idiot me, <laughs> I realized today it's because they're also the inner planets, but I just had never clicked with me. So anyway, these are kind of our core group, our main group. You could say they're your Tony Stark and, you know, whatnot. So you, your core Avengers, if you like. Yeah. Not that they're not all important and play a special role, of course. So as mentioned before, we have Usagi. So she is Sailor Moon. She is the one also known as Serena in the Western dubs. That's the name I knew her as or Meatball Head, of course. So she's a bit silly. Often the main character in these kinds of anime is a bit silly and childish and really relies on the (laughs) maturity and strength and gravitas of those around her to kind of get her through because she's just a bit hopeless. And this is no exception. Uh, She also has a a a rich backstory, which I'll talk a little bit more about as we dig into the movie. So in addition to Sailor Moon, we've also got Amy. Now she's very smart. She's studious. She's got a bit of tech going on. She's got special gadgets and things and she's quite shy and she does come out of her shell a bit more. And she is Sailor Mercury. So she has the powers of Mercury, which is water-based situation, lots of waves and blue and things. And then we have Ray. She's quite feisty and quote unquote hot headed. And I do remember her being very, her and Serena would often come to heads <laughs> and uh, she works at a shrine and she's often wearing more traditional outfits and things. And she is Salem Mars and that's generally power of fire. And so she whips all these flames and things. And that's kind of what she centered around. Then we have Makoto, who I knew as Lita in the Western dub. So she's kind of protector character. She's a strong, silent type, quite gentle. She's very tall. That's kind of part of, yeah, she's very conscious of her height. And she's Sailor Jupiter. And then we have Sailor Venus, who is Mina or Monaco. And she's kind of the two I see. So she's the second in charge. She's also got, so um, Usagi has Luna And Mina has Artemis, who's her companion cat, a little white cat. And so Sailor Venus kind of fights with the power of love. And so all of her things are around beauty and love and so on. Uh, Sorry, Jupiter has like a lot of lightning bolts and things that happen. And it's quite cool. So they all have their own very specific character art styles. And then, of course, we (laughs) okay, so we have Chibiusa, who I knew as Rini. And now she is, I don't think this is a spoiler, Sailor Moon 
and tux- I should have talked about Tuxedo Mask first, but we'll get to him in a second. Sailor Moon and Tuxedo Mask's child from the future. So she ah, that's her, that's <laughs> what, who she is. I, I'm trying to figure out who was this little mini Super Sailor Moon. That's yes. Her. So that's oh. Sailor Moon's child from the future. You might have been confused because she constantly flirts with Tuxedo Mask, who is her father, uh, despite knowing he's her father. So there's a bit of a weird dynamic there. But yes, yeah, she's come back from the 30th century, a future Earth, a future Tokyo, and just comes back to hang with them in their young form. There's a whole reincarnation storyline there too. But that's generally what you need to know. Of course, I did mention Tuxedo Mask before I mentioned his poor character name. So Mamoru also known as Darian. He is our love interest. There's a lot of talk of him and Usagi being, you know, one true love, together, eternal, blah, 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 all of that. So he's sort of the second half of that great love couple. And then, of course, we have our outer guardians who are the outer planets. And this is some sort of very interesting characters, which I'll talk a little bit more about in a moment. Uh, So we've got Sailor Pluto, Sailor Uranus, but they say Uranus. And that really bothered me because I'm pretty sure isn't the accepted <laughs> pronunciation Uranus, but sure. And then Sailor Neptune and Sailor Saturn. And so they all have a little bit of backstory, but for the interests of time, I won't dig too much into that. I did think, Rob, that probably if you were to choose, I think Saturn, I mean, sorry, I think Pluto would be up your alley because she's the guardian of time and space. So she does a lot of like time manipulation and things. And I was like, I bet Rob would be into that. <laughs> well, it was the it was the tougher ones actually. Uh, Mars and mm. Jupiter, the ones who had mm-hmm. like, they actually gave them more masculine voices in yes. in the in the dub version that I watched. Was it actually mm-hmm. just as a, as a question? Was it um, was there a, a Japanese language version available? Yes, there was. So there's actually a couple of different dubs available on Netflix. So I did listen to the first half in the Japanese dub out of interest because I have only ever watched Sailor Moon. Like I just have memories of it from a long time ago. I'd only ever watched it in English. And so I listened to the Japanese and then I realized they had different names and I got a bit confused at first. But there is a Japanese dub available and I watched the second part in the English dub because I was very interested to see the difference between the two, which I'd always kind of been meaning to do when we cover an anime. And I'd say the voices, they're very on par. They've done a good job of matching them up. So then we've also got our feline fighters, Artemis, Luna, and Diana, who is Chibiusa's companion cat. So that's pretty much everyone. There's very strong character kind of traits for each of them, and a lot of their characterization is based around this idea of the planet that they represent and the powers that they have and, and so on and so forth. And this film you kind of have to come into it knowing a little bit of of that. Mm. So dig into a little bit more about the the film itself in a moment, but I did just want to talk a little bit briefly about the Western Japanese, how that kind of was translated back in the day, because I do think it is interesting and kind of important to note. As I mentioned, I'd only ever watched the English Western versions. It's pretty safe to say that I got not only a quite westernized version, but a very sanitized, censored version. And it was the 90s as well. When they converted it over to Western television, they played it very, very safe. And basically, I mean, some of the changes they made were a lot about some of the queer representation was removed. So Sailor Neptune and Sailor Uranus are actually a couple, but the Western dubs kind of tried to massage that into them actually being cousins. And then they also, you know, censored some of the 
images to just remove any hints of anything that could be vaguely sexual. Um, this is sort of in the 90s version I'm speaking of when it came over to Western TV, not this Netflix movie that we'll be talking about in a moment. So, yeah, I think in general portrayals in anime can be very fraught. Um, I'm not very, I don't feel very informed on the topic and I don't want to explore too much because I think there's some things to be said about the different kinds of trans representations and the gender fluidity that can be present in anime that can be wonderful and done really well and then other times can be a bit damaging as well. So I don't want to dig into that here because I don't think it's quite my place, but I also did just want to flag that it's something to be conscious of and aware of and I think is not happening as much these days. But it is interesting um, thinking back to as a child, I was just so unaware of all of that stuff. This is probably an apt place to give the usual, well, now the usual content warning mm-hmm. that we do for anime. Uh, sometimes there are there are things that don't translate well from the culture that these were created in into mm. Western culture and things that actually translate all too well. Uh, mm. There are some exploitation things, what they call fan service and stuff, yes. and it is actually moot upon us to sort of raise a flag where we see some of those things. And in in this particular one, in um, Pretty Guardian, Sailor Moon Eternal, <gasps> um, <laughs> I did notice a few things there. There was uh, some of the tropes that they do run through. I think they get away with some of it that in this case because they had some circus performers in very brief costumes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Very sexualized. Like, there's no two ways about it. And uh, a competition that had to be done in bikinis for some particular reason that I cannot fathom. Uh, mm. a, a brief bathing scene. And when the sailor characters transform, they do do seem to be nude in detail, less Barbie doll sort of like way. You know, mm. so, mm-hmm. you know, there, there are some things that maybe you might want to screen um, if you're showing these to actual children. Or not, as the case may be, it's up to you. But I'll let you know that they are there. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, some of those things I think, you know, use your discretion, but there was definitely some shots that were sexualized for no good reason. Um, And I did did find that and I did think that was quite interesting given the juxtaposition with my memories of childhood. And so one thing I will note, this movie hasn't really had that treatment, um, the, the censorship treatment. And also the names have been, the Japanese names have been retained. So they haven't given them the Western names, things like that. So this is more actually a one-to-one, just they've dubbed it in English type of situation rather than adapted it for a Western audience. So I think that's kind of an interesting point to make if you are someone who watched Sailor Moon as a kid and you would have had a very different experience. All right, let's Let's finally crack into Sailor Moon Eternal. So this movie, and I did allude to it earlier and I did not realise going in, it it continues the Sailor Moon Crystal series, which came out in 2014. So it is adding on to the end of that series, which I have not watched, do not know, and am not familiar with. (laughs) So I did not know what was going on for a large proportion of the time. And I imagine, Rob, you were probably the same. Well, actually, I I pretty much clicked on what was happening right away because they used a trope that I'm very familiar with and it Mm. made me laugh. It's the circus of fear trope. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, so if mm-hmm. I can if yeah. I can sort of steal a march here with this one, um, mm-hmm. all of the sailors are dealing with their lives, with their dreams and their aspirations, and setting up their careers, and mm-hmm. and they're all 
quite interesting. You know, there's like uh, somebody wants to be a, a film or a music star. Another mm-hmm. one wants to become the guardian of a, a Japanese shrine. Another one wants mm-hmm. to be a racing car driver, you know, all sorts of great stuff. And into this this nice little sort of setup comes a circus of fear, which is a very old trope, you know. It actually goes back mm-hmm. to like um, mm-hmm. the cabinet of Dr. Caligari and so on. And let's face it, mm-hmm. you know, circuses of fear have killer clowns, of course. <laughs> Ray Bradbury's Something This Way Comes. There's an even further book called uh, Escardi Gap, which is a really terrifying circus of horrors. Uh, and this one of these actually comes to town. It's the Dead Moon Circus. Yes. <laughs> and, and, and you can bet because, you know, we've got the moon, Sailor Moon, and mm-hmm. all, of, all of the things associated with that, and this is the dead moon. So clearly yes. that's going to cause a lot of trouble for our team. Yeah, exactly. So we're very leaning into this light and dark juxtaposition. There was an eclipse uh, that happened, and this was used as the opening for these nefarious characters to enter this world and kind of set up shop with their circus and start trying to suck the energy out of all the humans and bring people's nightmares to life and so on. So it's the typical what's their end goal. It's want to bring darkness to the planet. We are the true rulers. We need to bring nightmares to everyone, basically, and that's the tool that we're using. There's also a Pegasus involved. Well, it's like a unicorn Pegasus. Yes, it's kind of a a Pegacorn. Yeah, it's a real mishmash. But of course, it's not just a Pegasus unicorn. It's as as everything in this show. It's got a human counterpart, which I want. Yeah, I guess it's not spoiling it. But yeah, it's not just a Pegasi. We've got these nefarious characters. There's a kind of a backstory about um, the future and a future kingdom and their dual identities. I'm not going to delve into that because I feel like it's it's not that important for you to know and, and going in, but that adds another layer of something to grasp onto. And basically it's up to the Dead Moon Circus folk. They target each of our heroes one by one and kind of try to, yeah, manipulate them basically. Are you sure this isn't an Avengers movie? <laughs> Because that sounds, I know, I know. sounds like the plot of, of so many of them. <laughs> um, I mean, also we've got Mamaru Tuxedo Mask is kind of suffering from a mysterious curse. And then there's some other plot devices that I'm not going to spoil, but they're really, they're, gra- they're cramming a lot of content ideas and concepts into the, t- the running time. And it is important to note it's two parts but it's essentially a three-hour movie. I'm still watching the separate part, and on Netflix it says that it's um, a series. Is there actually more than two episodes? Are there other episodes after this? No, so it's just the two, just the two part. And it's important to note too that the pace is as such of it being like a three-hour thing. So pretty much the whole second part is one long fight sequence. That's our third act basically, and we're really introducing characters, introducing characters, and then all of a sudden – we are at the final battle. And that final and, battle is very, very dark. Yeah, they're not pulling punches with some of no. that stuff, I don't think. There's there's, but, there's a, a situation in there where blood runs down the hands of one of the characters because of an event that I won't describe, but I'm thinking, mm. oh, my God, I'd be so traumatised if I was watching this <laughs> as a kid. <laughs> I guess that's it too. It's, it's sort of probably 
aimed at a more diverse audience these days, knowing how popular the manga and anime is. But yeah, so the our Sailor Guardians come head to head with uh, Queen of the Dead Moon, and so yeah, then we get our, our big final fight. Um, so the first bit is gathering everyone and introducing our threat, and then coming to the the main conflict. And then there's some stuff at the end which I won't ruin for you, Rob. <laughs> I, I tell you, um, I was impressed with the way that each of the characters got their their moment in the Helios, as I should say. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, they all got to shine. Um, it was like watching Seven Samurai in a way. We got to find out where they'd been, what they'd been doing, and they come together. And they have to they have to find, as you were saying, the strength within them to stop hesitating and fight. Or <laughs> and that's actually a line in the film. That kind of thing. I, I thought that was impressive. They did stop to do each one of those things because they probably know that there's like millions of kids out there who their particular sailor is this one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They want everyone has their time in the sun, all the time in the moonlight, so to speak. These cat companions you were telling me about. Mm-hmm. 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 At one stage, they're operating a console. <laughs> yeah. That's seriously pimped out with crystals. It, it's sort of like yeah. a bejazzled Starship Enterprise D bridge or something. And they're pressing the little buttons with their paws. And I reckon some of them are sitting on the con- on the controls themselves too. So I think that Absolutely. Be- <laughs> their tail's probably <laughs> flicking knobs everywhere. So I guess before I wrap up with just the final thoughts, let's hear another track. Uh, this one is there's an album of character tracks. So each one follows each different character and it's actually sung by the person who did the voice animation, which is pretty cool. So I thought let's listen to the one for Ray and this is sung by Rina Sato and it is called Sea of Fire. In the marmalade forest, forest. Between the make-believe trees G'day, I'm Brett McKenzie. I played an elf in Lord of the Rings. My dad played Ellen Dolby King. You're listening to Zero G on 3 Triple R. And I have one thing to say. My name is Figwit the Elf. You killed my father. Prepare to die. That was Sea of Fire uh, by Rina Sato from the Pretty Guardian Sailor Moon Eternal character soundtrack. That one was a song about Rey, who is our Sailor Mars. So... To wrap up, we've gone, covered a lot of ground here, a lot of the solar system. For me, I really enjoyed watching this. I think it's definitely something for fans. You should have some idea of this canon, some idea of this world, I think, to get something out of it because it is ridiculous. I'm not going to lie. It's crazy. There's stuff happening. It's it's just (laughs) weird trope after weird trope, strange sequence. I definitely said, what? A couple of times and had a good giggle at a few of the plot turns. I will say they don't waste any time jumping into the action. It's quite pacey. That said, the runtime, you know, it is almost three hours, so prepare yourself for that. The animation is great. Like you said, the the sequence with the cats in dealing with that console, like the animation in there is just brilliant. And I think if I was to go back and look at some old Sailor Moon, you couldn't even compare. Like I think, you know, there's no stock backgrounds. It's just, it's actually quite great. And that means the transformations of each Sailor Scout is also lovely. And the attack sequences and so on have been beefed up and given a bit of a power up. You know, the plot, I, some parts I just did not understand, (laughs) but I was happy to go with it. And I definitely, it was exactly what I expected and wanted from it. And it was really just a nostalgic trip 
down memory lane for me. What about you, Rob? What were your thoughts? Well, I was fascinated by identifying some of those tropes like the the circus of fear Mm. and the soot sprites. The, uh, mm, yes. <laughs> the the Watatari, the travelling soot that were in uh, my neighbour Totoro and spirited away. Mm-hmm. So Very was, similar, yeah. Yeah, which I think Miyazaki actually kind of invented for that, although, you know, I kind of they're kind of Oni and forest spirits and stuff similar to that, but, you know. Mm. So it was kind of nice to see those appear once again. And I, I did like the cat companions, as you thought I would. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the other tropes that were there, I, they don't really mean a whole lot to me. But I can see that you don't actually need me stomping through this with big Klingon boots or anything because it's mm. it's a thing, isn't it? It's it's quite charming in its way. Uh, yes. And if it doesn't necessarily speak to me, then Astro Boy doesn't speak to everybody either, you know. So mm-hmm, it, it's mm-hmm, the same mm-hmm, sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So I can see, like Pokemon, that as a kid I probably would have enjoyed this quite a bit and I, I, I would have had my favourite Sailor character, I'm sure. I probably wouldn't have been motivated to dress up as Sailor Moon, as I know that some people have done at cosplay and conventions and there's, and I mean some blokes, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's, that's a whole thing, I get that. Uh, not necessarily for me, but... I probably would have done a, a cat, <laughs> you know. But, uh, yeah, I, I thought it was fun enough and, and entertainingly silly as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and I have mm-hmm. to say that even though the part one was comprehensively littered with hypersonic little girl voices, I'd still rather <laughs> I'd still rather sit through this than Zack Snyder's cut of Justice League. <laughs> That's our new year now, maybe. It's like better or worse than Zack Snyder's Justice League, and I think this firmly is better. And I reckon that this superhero team, the Sailors, could kick, mm. could kick their asses, the Justice League. Got us I bet they could. I agree. I, I agree. I would watch that movie. I would watch the hell out of it. <laughs> a versus situation. So, yeah, that was Pretty Guardian Sailor Moon Eternal, the movie, two-part movie out on Netflix now. Yeah. Thank you, Megan. I, I think you nice. managed to convey some of the wonder that must be that. What do they call Sailor Moon fans? Is there a particular? Oh, well, I think Moonies is off limits. <laughs> but, um, I'm not sure what the fandom would call themselves, actually. Yeah. Well, I should find that out for next episode. Yeah. This is Jack Dan, author of Bad Medicine for Zero G, the science fiction, fantasy, and historical radio show on 3 Triple R FM. All right, so, okay, uh, Dragon Blade. We go from Japan to China, to ancient China, actually. And we have covered Sino-Romano films before, which is to say films that combine ancient China with ancient Rome. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that was uh, the Malay Chronicles, Bloodlines, back in 2011, directed, co-written and co-produced by Yasri Abdul Halim. And that had one of the princes of the Roman Empire going to marry a Han Dynasty princess. Mm-hmm. And, of mm-hmm. course, mayhem ensued as battles <laughs> overtook everything. And this is We the, love mayhem. This is the same thing. 
It's Dragon Blade. It came out in 2015. It's available on DVD or you can rent it from <laughs> Amazon Prime, which is what I actually did. It's written and directed by Daniel Lee and it starred mm-hmm. Jackie Chan and <laughs> John Cusack. <laughs> and <laughs> name a more iconic duo. <laughs> and Adrian Brody as well. Oh, okay. Now, Talk me through it. Where? How did this... <laughs> Before you can, what were their roles? Before you can say Great Wall, which is another sort of Western, <laughs> you know, Chinese film, uh, Jackie plays uh, Hua An, and he's and I love this. I cacked myself when I heard this. He's the commander of the Silk Road Protection Squad, the the SRPS, and this is during the um, the Han Dynasty, and it's set in about fifty BC. Now, mm-hmm. this is mm-hmm. quite a, an important moment in. Um, Roman history too, because you had a guy called Marcus Licinius Crassus. He was a Roman general in a poly, and mm-hmm. he was governor of Syria at this time. And if you know your Roman history, you'll know that he is one of the triumvirate that was ruling uh, Rome along with Pompey the Great and Julius Caesar. And this was a fairly sort of fragile but workable alliance for a while. And when it actually collapsed. When Crassus mm-hmm. was killed, uh, then you had the Roman Civil War and, you know, all of that sort of stuff. But anyway, um, Crassus was governor of Syria and ended up in a very unwise expedition against the Parthians. So if you mention mm-hmm. your geography, you've got the Roman sort of area, r- republic basically turning into the empire, uh, mm-hmm. the Parthian empire in the middle and then China on the other side. Okay, so the Silk Road connects the two of them, all three of them. Parthians okay. controlling trade between China and Rome. And there's not really a huge Sino-Roman connection, a direct linkage. But people like to think that there might have been one, and there's all sorts of little hints in history, but mm-hmm. not a lot of archaeological mm-hmm. evidence. But, yes, you will find, like, uh, Roman coins turning up in Southeast Asia and vice versa, and trade right. goods, silk going backwards and forwards and stuff and, and other things. So it's like this sort of distant thing. Really what people just want to see is, is a, a war game that pictures um, Qin Dynasty terracotta warriors against Roman legionnaires. You know, that's what they want. <laughs> Come <Yeah>. on. <laughs> and here's your chance <laughs> or your chan because Jackie ends up in the uh, the wild geese gate, which is on the Great Wall, and mm-hmm. the Roman Empire, or oh, sorry, I should really be talking about the Republic at this stage, um, comes into vast collision with mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. with the, the Han Dynasty. And at this stage, Jackie has fallen out of favour back at home because of corruption and bribery issues. He's ended up mm-hmm. defending this gate because the prison warden who's in charge of him there is useless. And so when the Romans rock up, it's like, oh, my God, what are we going to do? Quick, we will get, we'll put uh, Hua An in charge of it. He knows what to do. Uh-huh. And he does. But this is not actually all of the Roman Republic. It's a splinter group based upon survivors of the Battle of Carhae in which Crassus lost to the Parthians. And by the <laughs> way, um, Parthian in the Roman context is often used in the word parting shot. So the parting shot, actually, that's a phrase that comes from this particular thing. It's what the Parthians would do. They'd lure you into a fight. Uh, You'd chase after them 
and they turn around and shoot the hell out of you with their their really good composite bows from horseback. Anyway, enough of that. John Cusack is playing a Roman general mm-hmm. uh, called um, Lucius. We've seen John before, of course, in being John Malkovich, uh, Hot Tub Time Machine. He was in the David Gerald-derived Martian Child. He's played Edgar Allan Poe in The Raven. Uh, you know, he's he's been around quite a bit. And here he gets to act with his eyes a lot because I reckon that the director has said, you're in an international film, mate. We'll save, the, you know, it's like a cartoon in a way. Act mm. with your eyes and face so that everyone will understand you. So it doesn't. How'd he go with that? He did well. He did well. There is a genuine bond between him, his character, the Roman general, and Jackie Chan's character. That 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 feels like a, a something that's based upon mutual respect and admiration. And okay, and, nice. And they appreciate each other's fighting powers because, of course, in best bloke bonding fashion, they start out having a duel. <laughs> wow. You know, and and I should mention that Jackie is the fight director for this film and the fights are great. You know, some of them are well-worn stunt tropes uh, like flipping the um, brazier of red-hot coals onto a wagon full oh. of straw to set fire to it, stuff that he's done mm-hmm. plenty of times, but they're all great. Yeah. You know. it's, it's, it's a lot of fun, all of that sort of stuff. And the big set piece battles are good too. And this is what we're here for, to see a Roman legion pitched against Chinese troops back in there. Exactly. Uh, you know. Give us what we're after. <laughs> I do not care that they've made the Roman shields out of metal, which is a, a common trope in historical films. And if you've ever tried to lift a shield that's full metal in a non-ceremonial capacity and then cart it around for 25 miles, no, they did not make their shields out of metal. <laughs> you know, they're, they're just basically they're just plywood, but sometimes edged with metal and with metal. Right, pieces. okay. But there's a reason for them doing that in this. They need to be more durable for certain tactical reasons, which I won't go into. Right. You know, so don't look too close for historical accuracy in this one. There is an evil Roman called Tiberius, not to be mistaken for the Emperor Tiberius later on. He's actually one of Crassus's sons, and he's a nasty piece of work. And, of course, Adrian Brody pays him for all he is worth. We see Adrian in The Thid Red Line, The Village, King Kong, Predators in 2010, Midnight in Paris. He's one of Wes Anderson's muses, if you will. Yes, and- go-to gang. And he's been in Peaky Blinders too on television because all movie actors now love television. Don't they, though? It's the place to be. He's as he's scenery-chewing in this as Joaquin Phoenix was in Gladiator. You know, so he's, he has a lot of fun with this. Real piece of work, genuine villain in this one. So this is how the, the movie plays out, basically, this this long sort of fight between the Romans. And it's not all Romans are bad you know, in this, because let's face it, it was mm-hmm. a fairly old avaricious sort of bunch of people back then. They have, they collide in this, but here's the thing. This movie is a lot about peace coming together oh. of the 36 nations along the Silk Road. And if you would suspect that this was basically modern day Chinese propaganda to support their Belt and Road initiative, mm-hmm. you'd probably be right. And at the same time, name me one Western war movie where East and West collide, which are not propaganda films for the West. Do I yes, do I justify it? Do I note it? I do. Yeah. There it is. It's a fact. In fact, there's one bit of casting where um, 
Anne's uh, wife is played by is supposed to be a, a Uyghur woman. Oh. And it's kind of pointed in out in the film and you're just thinking, is there a reason for that? Are they trying to say, well, you know, here we are? And mm. I don't know. So I can't really dig too far down into that. I do note it and the, the propaganda value of this is obvious, uh, mm. kind of hokey, and they go too mm-hmm. far mm-hmm. in some places. The editing is a bit choppy. Okay. It still moves me, this film, because it's Romans and, 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 and China. And... You are its target audience. Yes, yes. <laughs> I actually am because I've read Black Horse Odyssey, which is about the survivors of, of the Roman survivors of Carhe being sold into slavery in the East, mm. you know, and the, mm-hmm. and the potential speculation. Um, there's another novel, a kid's novel called White Tiger, uh, about a Roman settlement of displaced troops setting up mm. home and there's you know all these legends about oh look there's a, a chinese illustration of a battle formation looks like the famous roman testudo of people holding their shields over their heads and to the side which is a little mm. bit western uh, patriarchal as if the chinese who had this huge and vast and complicated and long-running military organization across multiple empires and eras as if they couldn't figure out that basic military formation I do, mm. I do find that a bit of a, a bit of a jolly joke. It's like parallel evolution, right? Like, <laughs> no, it's an obvious thing to do. Come on, it's a fish scale formation. Mm. All of that aside, I am the ideal audience for this. So I did appreciate it. I did like <laughs> uh, John Cusack and Jackie Chan's interaction in this. I thought that was great. <laughs> it moved me. Um, I was less moved by uh, one of the actors who's clearly told to act with your face a lot. He. <laughs> is essentially in charge of uh, Publius, who's a younger son of Crassus, a little boy in fact, an impossibly Mm -hmm. golden-haired, buck-toothed, sweet little child who is being chased after by Tiberius to kill because he's going to be in the way of his becoming emperor Mm. or, you know, eventually something like that. And he's just this little angel with a voice that can be raised in uplifting song, and I think I will play that song along with the Jackie Chan <laughs> song as well at the end of the show today. We'll do both songs. We'll have Jackie singing and, you know, he's Jackie Chan. He can do everything. Uh, <laughs> singing a song called Song of Peace. Works out basically as a Dragon Blade theme song for the movie. Uh, I think Henry Lay did the the lyrics. He did the soundtrack for this. And the other song we'll play is Light of Rome. And these nice. these play off one after the other in the film. And Light of Rome is uh, is Publius, the young boy singing, who was obviously chosen because of his voice. <laughs> and, and it's basically a um, the, the song of peace is about the thirty six nations on the Silk Road mm-hmm. all getting together, hooray! <laughs> and, and Light of Rome is the song that um, the Romans sing as a counter to that. Yep, and okay. it's all about faith to the Roman Empire, and you know. And they they moved me these songs. This movie was did its job in in that. There's some there's some amazing battle scenes. They really lean into the idea of the Roman legionaries being jacks of all trade. Basically, uh, mm-hmm. they are mm-hmm. they are able to engineer at the drop of a hat, just as a, a legion mm-hmm. could do. You know, build a road, build me a road, make it a a long one, make it straight. They'll do that. 
build, fix, repair me a fortress. Yeah, we can do that. So I really, right. I really liked all that stuff. There's some anachronisms in hell, you know. The armor looks ridiculous, <laughs> but I'm, <laughs> I'm there for this movie. Propaganda value over there and acknowledged, and kind of shunted to one side because it was a fun movie. Bit choppy editing, uh, some great music, stunts are great. It's a Jackie Chan movie. What do you expect? <laughs> yeah, delivered. It delivered what you were after. It was. It, it did indeed. Um, yeah, you can run a few criticisms past it along all those levels, and I did. Uh, but I still enjoyed it a lot, so I still give it a, yeah, you know. Mm-hmm. And where can we watch it again? Amazon Prime. Uh, it's a rental or a buy, and mm-hmm. it can also be had for about 12 bucks on DVD. Anyway. Okay. Dragon Blade. Dragon Blade, yeah. That's two words, not one. And so mm-hmm. we'll go out with that today, tracks from that. The glory that was Rome and Han Dynasty China, obviously, all put together in one thing. Uh, Thank you, Megan. Thank you, Rob. And Kayla Larson is still she who makes our podcasts and makes them very well. Mm. And off we go with Jackie Chan. Joe Brunetic coming up next with Astral Glamour. G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast at Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.